0: Allison, I know I haven't updated you recently on my reading life, but I did just read, for reasons even I can't understand, Kitty Kelly's Oprah biography, and I was just really inspired by what Oprah calls manifesting, that we can manifest anything in our lives. And I just kind of want to know from you, like, can you give me a historical example of someone successfully manifesting something in their life? I
1: can, and I will, at Brit R. Bennett, September 15, 2020. The fact that there is a new American girl doll whose historical era is four years before I was born. Follow-up tweet. Give us a black American girl doll set in the 90s and please let me write it. 6.42 p.m. What are we gathered here today to read?
0: Gathered here today to read truly one of the finest meat books these eyes have seen, Me Cloudy. By one Britt Bennett. Oh my god, she did it. <laughs> she did it. <laughs> wow welcome everyone to dolls of our lives this is the podcast where we're reliving the american girl series book by book i'm mary i'm still allison allison we're we're pumped to get into this new series the only sadness i feel is that their only book one is out right now
1: Yeah, as we're recording, which is February of 2023, we have had meet Claudie for a minute and we are getting the second book. We believe there will be two total in June of 2023. And so we have to wait a little bit more, but people have wanted us to cover this book since it came out. So we wanted to give that to you. We couldn't wait. We
0: had to jump right in. It just
1: felt right too, because we've so recently covered... Kit Kitteridge and Rebecca Rubin so we feel like we're still sort of in their world this book is set about eight years after the Rebecca Rubin books and just about the same like before the
0: Kit books, so 12 or so years before her story starts so it felt right it did feel right and you know what else felt right lately Allison like what has gone well in your pop culture life what are you taking in what's up
1: You know, the name of this show is Dolls of Our Lives, and I don't recommend that the doll Megan become part of your life, but if you enjoyed what happened to and in the course of like the movie Get Out, To Allison Williams. I think you should check out the movie (laughs) Megan because she plays a very similar character and it raises this question of what you want your dolls to do for and with you. Megan is actually an acronym for like a fully activated robot who's supposed to be your best friend. And Allison Williams becomes a guardian not by choice and decides that instead of like reading a parenting book, she will finish a robot she's been working on for her niece and the niece and the okay. robot form a codependent bond. And you can imagine where it goes from there. Megan is the I robot. mean,
0: it sounds less disturbing to me than that episode of 30 Rock where James Franco has the girlfriend pillow. But, like, regardless, <laughs> this doesn't sound – as you know, I can't handle anything scary. And, like, Get Out did make me, like, scream with laughter and scream because I was scared. Like, what is your review? Is this, like, for everyone? Could I handle it? I don't think it's scary on a jumpy
1: level. I do think it's scary and interesting on a philosophical level because we know that, like, a lot of people who listen to this have played with dolls, do play with dolls. And the question is, like, do you actually want the doll to play back? And the answer presented in this film is no. Like, you actually don't want a doll that speaks back to you. One of the most, like, fascinating things in the film is this idea that because she's a robot, like, you should be able to turn Megan off. Like, you should be able to say, Megan, deactivate. And Megan finds enough consciousness to resist that. So, she actually becomes able to, like, fight back against that. I think even if you want your dolls to be able to talk to you, you also want to be able to, like, take space from them. Megan watches the person she's, like, meant to be friends with sleep. Like, it's a lot I love it it's not for everybody but I thought it was a lot of fun oh my
0: god this is taking me back to like my grandmother used to buy me porcelain dolls on QVC I'm not sure why but I used to keep them in my room and like when I would get up in the middle of the night I would be like these dolls are straight up watching me oh they are yeah I mean they might be like I mean literally they were and like I couldn't I couldn't receive that and it's like I'm the type of person that even now in the winter months My humidifier is going at night in my bedroom and I wake up and this is like tale of two people. When Anna sees the steam coming out of it at night, she's initially like, oh, God, is there a fire? Sort of practical response. I see it and I'm like, oh, my God, is there a ghost in here? (laughs) And it's like so serious to me. I'm like, oh, my God, is there a ghost in here? And then I'm like, oh, God, never say those thoughts out loud, especially not out loud on a podcast listened to by, you know, more than a few people. So, you know, here I am, Allison. I don't know if Megan's for me, but I'm happy that like, did it bring you joy?
1: It certainly did, and I don't like robots, so anything that presents an anti-robot narrative, I'm very happy with. I don't even like vacuums that have a personality. So for me, this was wonderful. It was some doll humor. I liked the way that they kind of played the whole thing out, and I also think, you know, it didn't go very far in normalizing bringing your doll everywhere, but I respect that the main character put out her rights that she deserved to bring Megan, like even to school. Oh my God. (laughs) Megan is homicidal. So it was actually not a good play in the long run, but you know, that's, Mm -hmm. I won't get too spoilery, but you know, Megan is not a good doll, shall we say?
0: Yeah. Okay. Well, I'm glad that you (laughs) had that experience. Wow, um, I have not been seeing Megan, but I have had an instance of manifesting in my own life and I just wanna share this with you and with listeners who you know might feel prepared to be changed by this, but I saw an ad, or I think Anna did, that Dolly was coming out with a new line of baked goods from Duncan Hines. Now, I will say I just made some Duncan Hines brownies a couple weeks ago and I, I feel like it was my error, but they came out like cake. They all like pushed to the center of the pan. I don't know what I did. I'm not a cook. Regardless, anything Dolly's involved in, I'm like, okay, I guess I'm getting involved in this. So she put out there that she was coming out with a kit that essentially is like all of these new mixes, which all look good. They're brownie mixes, cornbread, things I actually eat, and a tea towel and a spatula that says, what would Dolly do? Like, I need this. Not in it for the baked goods. I I love dessert, (laughs) but I'm in it for that. And it was like, just sign up to be a member of the online Duncan Hines community. I'm putting that all in scare quotes. And then we'll let you know when you can hop in and buy this, you know, ahead of the public. So, of course, I do what I always did. And I entered Anna's email address and I was like, Anna, congratulations. You're now a member of the online Duncan Hines community not thinking that I would be at work when this was going down. So Anna like, sent me the information and was like, it's going down today at 11 a.m. When I tell you, like, I have a new appreciation for people trying to get Taylor Swift tickets from Ticketmaster, like, this was my Ticketmaster gate. Because I logged in at 11 a.m. and immediately it was like, it's sold out. I guess you're not a real fan. That was the implied message. Why did this happen this way? I mean, they were like, I think Duncan Hines was like, listen, we know this is going to be hot. Like, we're setting this up like a big outing, a big drop, because it was. I log on at 11. I'm sending on a like panic text. I'm like, it's 11 a.m. Like, do you know where your Dolly Goods are? It wasn't there. And then miraculously, I was like, I'm just going to try this again in case it's a computer thing. And then it was in my cart. I went on such an emotional roller coaster. But long story short, I did just receive my kit. OK. I will post photos of it. It is the most beautiful packaging you've ever seen in your life. For mixes that I hope are better than mid, but I mean... We'll see. This is a Ghirardelli brownie mix household. So it's like, I got to see where we're at, but I have to support Dolly and all things. But I feel like I manifested it for myself. I was like, I am going to get this kit. Will this turn me into someone who cares about cooking? Probably not. But like, here I am. Do you think you will be
1: better or worse at baking than Claudie Wells' daughter of a professional
0: baker? (sighs) That's a big no. I mean, this man is an artist, as we learned. True. To quote a different character talking about him, so I feel like we've waited long enough. I think we have to dive right in. Okay, are, are we are ready, ready to meet her? Let's
1: do it. So, as many of us know, this book is very recent. Uh, it's set exactly, or it was made exactly a hundred years after it's set. I'm going to give a little overview in case Claudia wasn't part of your life when she came out in 2022. Claudie Wells wants more than anything to be a person whose imagination can fly, instead of a person whose feet are stuck on the ground. She's growing up in the neighborhood of Harlem in New York City during the 1920s, surrounded by writers and poets, painters and sculptors, actors and dancers, singers and musicians. Everyone seems to have a talent except for her. When an eviction notice threatens her family, her friends, and the beloved home they share, Claudie has an idea that just might save the day. But first she'll have to find the confidence
0: to let her imagination soar wow i mean quick like overview thoughts about this book
1: so i absolutely adored this book i loved this book i will say full disclosure i have read this book print copy once and i have listened to it twice and i don't say that for like points I have enjoyed consuming this book so much. I will probably listen to the audio book again. I don't listen to anything <laughs> uh, multiple times. I was under duress. As you know, I lost my wallet and I had to look through my car. Um, you have an appreciation of how arduous a process that is. It's a real archive in there. Someone asked me, did you look in your car? And I said, you know, I can't answer that question with a yes (laughs) or a no. So in broad daylight at my place of work, I have no shame. I opened all my car doors because I needed daylight. I put on this book and doing a task that I absolutely loathed. I was so happy because I was listening to the audio book of this book and I really, really
0: liked it. It's a great, it's a great book. I would put this right up there with any of the best meat books in any of the series. Like, I genuinely love this book. And I want to, before we even get into the content, I want to talk about how it's structured, which is somewhat different. And before we get into like maybe the hard copy, I know you listened to it and you were telling me off air that there's something very special and different about the audiobook version.
1: There is. And so I actually was thinking that too, that we want to take kind of a a step back and look at the structure of this book. I also wanted to point out, I wanted to just read something that's different to us, because I know that we often try to read first editions of these books. Underneath the summary, there is kind of a mission statement from American Girl. And I just wanted to read that because it also kind of helps to scaffold what's going on in this book. The AG mission statement that goes with this story says, We celebrate girls. As storytellers, we believe in the power of strong characters who show girls what it means to be resilient, confident, and kind. From historical to contemporary and advice to activity, our books inspire girls to discover who they are and who they're meant to be. This book is not like anything that we have read previously, and it's not like anything we've read before, because to me, this is a full circle on the best of the old historical and the best of what they've been doing as a series since they stopped making the six book arcs. And we can kind of talk about what that means, because there's a lot of components to this book.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, maybe we should get into that, like about the changes they made. Yeah, so we get the about the author, which is
1: like pretty typical, we get information about the illustrator. And then we have really extensive bios at the front for the advisors for Keisha's, um, for the advisor for Claudie's story, including Keisha Blaine, who is listed at the top. This is kind of a who's who in terms of Black history and research. Dr. Marsha Chatelain is mentioned. She is a person who famously wrote an essay for the AHA about the importance of American girl, Evelyn Brooks Higginbotham, Shannon King, and Spencer Crew are here. But this is pretty much unprecedented, I think, since Kaya to have like this much information about the background work that they did to make this historically accurate.
0: Yes, I love this because to me it was like, here's the Justice League. Like, here's the super, like, I don't know superhero stuff, but like the all-star team. Like, this is the people that we're drawing on we brought in to make sure that this entire worldview and the history behind it is on point but i was kind of thinking about like reading this from the perspective of being a kid like we loved the peek into the past because it showed us like kind of what historians did at a very young age and to me it's like this would be so powerful to read to understand like oh these are historians like this is a thing that you can do like should you do it is another question but like This is really powerful to me to read people. And they all give a quote about when they first became excited about history. And I thought that that was really beautiful. And it made me wish that like every book had this, all the historic books. But I love that this book has this.
1: I think of anything we've ever read by American Girl, and I think we kind of know why this is happening. This is the product that I have read that has the most to me that feels like they understand they have an adult readership not just an adult collectors group. And part of that is Brit Bennett's audio preface speaks to adults. Like it does. It speaks to adults and the ending speaks to children. But so much of it is about how she was a fan who grew up and became a creator and how special and wonderful that is. And showing these other adults – I also think this is in the spirit of what the story is about, which is a place, and Britt Bennett says this explicitly, a place that is for artists and creators where Black people are encouraged to thrive and are able to do more than survive, right? Like that Harlem is this very special kind of place And I think putting that kind of introductory panel and saying a choice was made by a corporation to put people who are the absolute best at what they do at the forefront as role models, that's in line with what Claudie experiences as a resident of Harlem in 1922. Like this book like pulls circles on itself over and over in a really beautiful way And has an actual proper peek into the past, like an actual fully fleshed out, very well written, like not a two page kind of thrown aside. And the book starts with an invitation that comes from Britt Bennett and the fact that she loved Addie and it ends with a view into an Addie book. Like this is the most full circle thing you've ever
0: read it really is and i i think that i don't know if the introduction that you have the audio introduction is the same as her letter that's in the front of the book which ends with her like describing a phone call she had with connie porter is that the same thing yeah yeah but But that's not in my book oh i have the hardcover edition i don't know so i i have it in the letter yeah they're not trying to brag i do have the hardcover edition it's not a big deal um no that's that's amazing it is beautiful. This book is gorgeous. The illustrations are beautiful. Um, but the letter I thought was really profound because I came to this book, Anne Britt Bennett, having read um, the Vanishing Half, her novel, and having read her essay in the Paris Review years ago, talking about growing up with Addie, and really kind of just candidly saying like it's really hard to negotiate a trauma narrative. Like your the history I'm handed as a black person is a trauma narrative. Like what do I do with that? It's both. Something that meant a lot to her. She played Addie in a public library play, but it's also a challenge. And this, I think it's a really beautiful way to preface this book because she talks about also situating her life as a child at play, like loving Polly Pockets, which I also love too, Barbies, et cetera. And, you know, how Connie Porter inspires her to be a writer. And then at the end of the letter, she describes a call she has with Connie Porter when she found out she was going to get to write this book and gets to say, like, the ultimate gift, like, thank you. Like, you inspired me. And Connie Porter says, like, I hope somebody calls you in 30 years and says, you made me want to be a writer. And she says, I I want to hear from you then. Um, But it's a really great way of situating, like, her own history with the brand and the brand's own history with Black History And saying, like, yeah, we've had a history of trauma here, and this is going to be about Black joy. Like, it's also going to be about hardship and challenges, and we can get into the plot of this book. But, like, to me, I think the big pivot point is, like, there's a lot of joy in this book and in this world. She says that she explicitly
1: created Claudie to, quote, live in a moment of Black artistic joy. And Mm -hmm. the peek into the past situates uh, Harlem like very specifically as a character. And I feel like that's a that's a line that's become like a little bit of a cliche. It's like, oh, New York is a character in Sex in the City. But Harlem really is a hugely significant character in this story in a way that I think is very well done. And I think this book also tries to pay tribute to the fact that For a lot of families, their living connection to a place like this may have recently passed, but this book is a wonderful bridge for families to have a conversation and to kind of imagine like, you know, that may have been your great grandparent or your great great grandparent. And maybe Mm. that person isn't with us anymore, but we can read the story and connect to them. I also think it's iconic that Britt Bennett like squeezed in that she played the computer game where she's like, Ooh, Don't yes. like, don't be confused. Like, I love to play. I was in this. And that made her want to be a writer. I also think it it shines light. We meet Claudie and we meet her at a moment where she is trying to figure out what she is going to be good at. She's seeing all of these people who are amazing at what they do. And Britt Bennett gives us some insight into her story that before she was a writer, she loved to play and to create play scenarios. And that's how she got into writing. That's also very much the journey that Claudie goes on in this book. And I love that she was invited to share so much of herself and she wanted to. Connie Porter remains a bit of a mystery in the American Girl universe like we have endless stories about Valerie Tripp and others. Connie Porter doesn't have the same kind of relationship because she only ever wrote Addie Walker. So it's cool that Britt Ben is sort of like, here's who I am, and I am this way, partially because of Connie Porter.
0: Yeah, and I think she presents a model that I find really legible as a fellow fan who's also been critical of some of the brand's past choices like, You can have like we're. i'm thinking about our patreon book which is about in many ways like what it means to be a fan and i think like the way that she's moved her fandom from being someone who both really loved american girl like in it in the computer game like playing addy etc to then like not just being like oh well this is problematic but like genuinely moving to a place of creation and creating something brand new with the brand that sort of demonstrates the things that she's very aware of the gaps and the you know odd choices or choices we perhaps wouldn't make in 2023 Um, with her own vision. And I do think like in some ways, it also sets up you mapping her life as a person who comes to be a writer to Cloudy's life as someone who's like a young person trying to figure out what she might be good at, what she might enjoy doing. And it looks like landing on being a writer. Like we don't know where the end goal is going to be. Like probably book two will reveal that. But I kind of like that mirroring as well. Like, I'm not saying Brit equals Cloudy, but I think there is some overlap there that seems purposeful.
1: I thought it was absolutely amazing that her love of Addie is listed as her top credential. We learned where she's from, and we learned that loving Addie, or being a fan, says was a fan of the American Girl character Addie, is listed as her top. And then we meet the illustrator, Laura Freeman, who's absolutely wonderful, And it says, you know, she's won an NAACP Image Award. Uh, It's just an amazing kind of like... Parallel. (laughs) Yeah, like loop for American Girl to do. We have criticized in the past the scaling down of world building. And this book gives us an absolutely stunning map of Harlem where we could kind of like track through like where... Um, Claudie would have actually lived her boarding house. I want to talk about the boarding house as really, I think the ideal location for American Girl stories because of what we get to learn, but Claudie's family and friends, uh, features her, her younger brother, her parents. Um, Jody is amazing. Jody is very, very funny. That is her younger brother. She has a best friend named Nina. And then the other characters are people who are not blood relatives, but people who are all talented in their own way, who teach Claudie something about their talent.
0: Yeah, so just to go through the list of, like, key characters, like, Miss Amelia runs the boarding house, we learn she's from Jamaica, and she worked as a seamstress, so, like, her talent is... For sewing selma a glamorous and talented jazz singer she's iconic she has a trunk of costumes that she lets cloudy wear porter a musician who plays cornet in a brass quartet he's from new orleans Um, he also helps her in her journey and gwen who to me is like my favorite character in the book because she's doing that thing in a children's book of like a person who ostensibly does not like children yeah. like she is not allowed to go into her room when she does she's like show me your hands like are they clean like she's basically like i'm not here to make friends with kids but um she's also like the biggest mentor in the book in some ways like she ends up being like treating um cloudy like a real person and taking her issues and feeling seriously but i mean god what an environment to grow up in around all these artists and musicians like I was automatically jealous at that point, like, whoa, I can't imagine what that would have been like.
1: We also get, I think, of all the books that we've read, there is something very hard to do in these books, which is bring in real details that align you with actual historical events in a way that doesn't feel clunky. And we're given a timeline that I think is hugely important that her mother and her father both have careers and her mother works yes. for the Amsterdam News and they throw in there in a way that doesn't feel weird that that started in 1909. And so we can kind of imagine that her mother was probably a very early employee and a woman employee of this mm. company and probably had to work because her father serves in World War One. So mm-hmm. let's imagine even if her father is very early, like very, very early, he's serving around 1917 through maybe 1919. Not even. Claudie's a very little girl. Claudie is probably five or six years old when he's away. And Jody is probably born right around the time he's leaving or shortly after he comes back. But probably like during the wartime. Yeah, unclear. But thinking of this family's timeline, that when he comes back, she has this wonderful line where she talks about how he had been in the unit that spent the most time in the trenches, and now he wants to use his hands to make something beautiful. And Mm. I look back at where the series, the historical characters started, They play with a character like Molly and situate her in a real war, in a place that's not real. And I've said this before, but I think it's so important – putting these characters in a place that is
0: real and
1: giving their families real timelines, I think adds so much more.
0: I agree. And I I think that this was very artfully and subtly done. I think that it makes sense for her story that both parents would have to work outside the home. And I think that Britt Bennett does a great job of humanizing that in the sense of letting Cloudy feel feelings about that and not trying to resolve it to make the imaginary parents feel better. Like, You know, she says there are times I imagine my mom is home when I get home from school and asking me how my day was. And, you know, I feel sadness at dinner when I many nights when I see her empty chair because she's out hunting down a story or following leads. And, you know, that's, I think, a real feeling that a lot of kids probably can relate to. And I love that that's in the book just as a human element. But I also love that it's kind of like in some American girl books, it does feel a little bit like subtle, like a freight train where it's like, oh, wow, like your dad's involved in the American Revolution or like, you know, like people are involved in huge historical events in ways that feel not real. And this actually does bring this in in a way that does feel absolutely realistic, like having her father have served in World War One in the 369th Harlem Hellfighters who spent over 170 days in the trenches, like, of course, this man has seen things and has trauma. But the way that that's also laid out is not done in a, you know, overbearing or like, it's his whole it dominates his life. I mean, this is the thing that inspired him to become a baker, it settles his mind is how he describes it. And, you know, but it's also like, she's not ignoring that this the war hasn't ended for him. I think a theme of this book, in terms of thinking about black histories of World War One is like, obviously that favorite line, like, we return, we return fighting, like, there's a war on two fronts. And when Black veterans return, they are not afforded the same rights as White veterans and, in fact, are, are punished and You know, I think that this book bears that out in a way that doesn't feel like hitting you over the head, but it's like, this is what really happened.
1: He's also, I think, a fantastic guide for Claudie, who is trying to figure out what her talent is, and she's trying to determine what she's going to be best at. When I first heard in the early pages uh, this line, she hadn't been born with any talent, really. In fact, she didn't think that there was anything special about herself at all. It got really nervous and then within a few pages she's with her father and her father uh immediately refutes that right so we introduce right. a feeling that's completely normal right that is part of a lot of people's human experience and then we have um this is not Josefina's world okay we have a father Ooh. who is affirming and questions her on this and then he says you're kind you're smart a good sister friend that's plenty special And it's this amazing awareness of the fact that his daughter is sad and that she's searching Mm. and she's just come from a dance class where she isn't the best one. Mm. And her father is able to say to her, you know, that life kind of has these twists and turns. He's had this horrific experience, but he's able to have a home in a place where he's running a business, right? Where he's encouraged by his neighbors to do that and to create something beautiful, I think one of the most interesting arcs of this book is her coming to see her parents as artists because they live in this boarding house with painters and people who make music and a jazz singer and dancer. And she feels like her parents are kind of the boring ones, and then she watches her mother interview someone for the paper, and she really learns to see her father, and then she appreciates that there can be artistry in everything. I was doing my second uh, listen-through while I was cleaning my kitchen, and I was like, yes, Claudie, like this is a really like beautiful takeaway from this
0: story. Yeah, I think it's really beautiful when you can have someone give you perspective on people that you think you know really well, like including your parents and seeing them not just as mom and dad or whoever. And, um, you know, I think when Gwen in particular says to Cloudy, like your dad is an artist, like when I see his cakes, like I don't even like sweets, which I was like, this is the least relatable line in this <laughs> entire book. Um you know, I can appreciate what he's doing as art. And I I love the scene between Cloudy and her mom when she's asking her mom, like, what do you think my talent is? And she's saying, like, I can't be like you. Um, and her mother says, well, you're very inquisitive, which we as adults reading this book can understand in that moment because she's not like, she's sort of like being ironic or sort of funny because Claudia's, at the very end of a long work day, Claudia just keeps firing questions at her. So there's a part of her that's like, well, you are inquisitive. I'll say yeah. that. <laughs> but, you know, and she doesn't know what that means. And she says, it's good to ask questions. It means you ask questions. And Claudia says, like, well, that's not a talent. And she says, it's good to ask questions. That means you're paying attention. Yes. And I think that this idea of like paying attention is a really subtle but beautiful thread of this book. Like, as you're saying, paying attention to your parents, seeing them, for maybe in different lights and it reminded me of that line in, um, Ladybird, where she says, the nun says love is paying attention, um, where um, Cersei is like, I hate it here. And then like writes all this stuff about California. And she's like, you hate it, but like you've paid attention to it. Like that's the sign of loving something is paying attention. And I thought that was a really beautiful way of like demonstrating that throughout the book.
1: There um, is a central issue in this book, right? Which is that everyone is working. Everyone seems successful. And yet Miss Amelia can't cover the rent right? like, And Mm. yet they have this over $100 shortfall. And I think this book was definitely written for a moment, right? When we we live in an eviction crisis moment and we live in a really difficult financial period for a lot of people. And so I think that was obviously an amazing choice on Britt Bennett's part, but they have this issue, which is not being able to afford this place that they really love and they really care about. There's this Background, though, of Claudie asking questions, not just about that, but a scene that I think could have gone so many different ways, when Claudie asks her parents, and they're talking about the lynching flags that are put out on the NAACP, and her mother sits her down and says, I don't want you to be scared, but you need to know what's happening. That happens about 10 pages after the conversation where it's established that Claudie is inquisitive. This book is built out really well where that question isn't a non sequitur. That question isn't random. And we can think of other characters like the gulf between a Felicity and a Rebecca Rubin. Felicity would not ask that kind of insightful question. A Rebecca Rubin might, right? Like we build up these characters in different kinds of ways. Like Felicity would like barge right into a situation because that's part of what makes her like an interesting character, we've established that Claudie cares about the world around her. And so it's in line with her character to say, what is that flag that mentions that a person has been lynched? What does that mean? And Claudie wants to know what words mean. And so she gets an explanation from her parents. And that also allows her father to talk about, he has this dual reception coming home. He has this amazing moment of joy, seeing his daughter and his family for the first time. And then he has these horrible moments of racism where people attack him. Claudie is the character to pull all of that out because of who she is.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think it demonstrates a really healthy balance between the parents and Claudia as the child in terms of what they filter for her ears and eyes. Like there's another scene where the mom flips a story over that she's working on when they come visit her in the newspaper office. Because, you know, like without saying it, it's like there are certain like probably descriptions of violence or other things if she's working on a story on lynching. Um, that are not for a child's ears or eyes. And yet I think there's also an awareness that it's like, and this may affect you. So we have to talk to you about racism and even like our world. I think something that's also strong about this book is sometimes when people have written about the Harlem Renaissance or like this period in history, Harlem sort of comes across as this like perfect utopia, where racism and all these other things like don't reach in the same way that they do other places. So I think the book does a good job of like tempering that and kind of saying like, yeah, like white people owning property and charging exorbitant rents. Like there's a character in the book says, you know, the rent in Harlem is higher than anywhere else in New York City. And that's in part what's driving the eviction notice and the crisis that happens to this kind of chosen family of the boarding house. But also that, you know, violence happens against Black people in Harlem and, and all over the place. And I think that's what's interesting about then, like, framing Cloudy, like, wanting to go back to Georgia with the mom for the well, for the first time for her. And, like, we almost can anticipate, like, how that's going to be really different for her more than she can they have a conversation, and
1: uh, her mother, who's from Georgia originally, says, Shelman is a colored town. It's not like Harlem. The South is different. And there is an introductory panel in this book that explains why the characters talk in a certain way that they do, and that language is different. And the way that these people like um, talked about race would be different, right, than how you would typically talk in an. They've used the word appropriate. Right. <laughs> to say it's not as if people don't talk this way today, but like what is appropriate is different in terms of the language around race from then. I like that this book didn't try, as you're saying, to draw out an exaggerated difference to say, you know, there are two worlds and they are completely different. There's racism in Harlem. There's discrimination in Harlem. But her mother is preparing her for the fact that her experience of racism and discrimination will be distinct. And we have Claudie really energized and excited to be able to write down that kind of story What I think comes out for Claudie the most in this book is they have this problem. They have to fundraise money to meet the rent. And Claudie tries to figure out all these different ways that that might work. And what she lands on is they're going to do a talent show. And in what feels like very uh, kind of funny throughout the book is like all the different reactions she get. People say, you know, people don't have money. Gwen actually is the one that forces her to do the most introspection because Gwen will not participate and will not create any set backdrops unless Claudie herself is willing to make art alongside everyone else.
0: yeah, and I thought that was a really beautiful moment because everyone else is sort of like kind of lets her off the hook when she's feeling vulnerable about what she might be able to contribute or share. Like, as she, the first part of the book, the challenge is, like, what is my talent? And right. what am I going to, like, What is what am I good at? And, um, you know, Gwen basically allows her to bring that into, like, a bigger conversation about, like, the second half is about how are we going to fight this eviction and raise $100 to pay back rent? And Gwen, I think, does a great job of saying, like, you have to have something personally at stake here. You can't just ask everyone else to perform their talent. You have to offer something. And that's really about just saying like, I am worthy of being part of this group that wants to share something like her brother with no qualms is like, I'm teaching my dog tricks like I will be performing dog tricks at this talent show. <laughs> Everyone is doing something great or small. And I think there's a part of her that's like very vulnerable about, you know, what can I offer? And someone kind of lets her off the hook and is like, well, you can be the director. But Gwen is like, uh, uh-uh, no, like I'm not giving you a single backdrop unless like you bring something here. It's
1: Selma, who is a singer, who encourages her to be the director. And in the conversation that she has with Selma, they talk about, you know, how how have you learned to become a great singer? And uh, she, Claudie says that she doesn't, she can't sing. And Selma laughs and says, what do you mean? You have a lovely voice. Not like yours, Claudie said doesn't have to be like mine to be lovely, Selma said. It's lovely because it's yours. And this is where I really highly recommend the audiobook because the voices really come through of these different people. Mm. And like we hear Miss Amelia's Jamaican accent. We hear like these slight nuances in these characters. And it pulls out this other point, which is Claudia is fully processing for the first time that, quote, no one is from Harlem right? Like that this is the first generation yeah. of people. And I'm. And it is noted correctly in the book that there have been African-American and Black residents of Harlem for centuries before this book mm-hmm. is set. But everyone in her world is a transplant. And that is something that is important to her. Like everyone she knows is not originally from that place. They chose Harlem as a place to live. What a brilliant moment to situate her in, 1922, because they can talk about World War One. They can talk about recent race riot events, right? Um, But they can also bring in, like, the wonderful flourishing of culture that's happening and is about to happen. Like, the Renaissance officially dates, like, 1924, But it's already happening. It's just growing as Claudia is looking at these different aspects of her world.
0: I also think it's kind of clever to situate Claudia in this moment and have her be like, what if I'm just average? Like, imagine (laughs) if you lived in Harlem during the Harlem Renaissance and you're like, I can't sing, I can't dance, I can't paint. And I think it's playing at a really interesting kind of thread in Black culture that persists to this day of, like, this need or requirement of white culture for people of color to be excellent, to be visible, like that they have to be extremely talented and there's this pull to that like I don't know why this lives in my mind but there was an episode of Oprah speaking of Oprah earlier with Tiger Woods and his dad and it was like when Tiger Woods was first like becoming famous and his dad was like To be truly excellent at something, you have to know when you're a child and like basically spend your whole life on that one thing. And he was like, I knew Tiger was excellent at golf at like seven years old and he's played golf forever since then. And to me, I was just like, I remember feeling panic watching this probably in my teens and being like, but I have no idea what I'm good at. Like, I don't have a talent. I don't know what I'm doing. And of course, now as an adult, I'm like, that's insane. And the pressure that you put on a child to basically like live out your fantasy was nuts. But I do think there is something still in the way that um, you read black entertainers be interviewed that they feel a pressure like I have to be excellent. I can't just be average. And I wonder how you situate that. In the world of this book,
1: I think that's where you see really the intellectual influence of someone like Keisha Blaine and Evelyn Brooks Higginbotham coming through this book because that history is what they specialize in. And obviously, Britt Bennett also has her perspective. You can see the way like this is her book, but you can see how a really strong advisory panel of people who have studied, right? Like the different elements, the different contours. We've talked in the past on the show about this idea of the talented 10th, right? Of by this point, someone like W.E.B. Du Bois is like coming into his own, right? Like, so he is already kind of a character in in a sense in the world of black history, you have people who are starting to think about like how do we actually publish and get out black history? How do we further promote the NAACP? And the Brownies book, which is a product made specifically for children to kind of teach and promote Black excellence, is a few years old. So Claudie is the perfect mm. age for this. But there's this idea that you need to have a certain number of Black intellectuals, Black artists, people who are running their own institutions to further promote. And the word they would have used is uplift, to uplift the rest of everybody else. And something hugely important to point out about this time period is that schools are segregated, right? Her world is segregated. This is a book about segregation. Claudia's world Mm. is Black Harlem. That's her world. Part of the idea behind the Talented Tenth is pre-forced integration. There was an acute need for Black teachers because only Black teachers taught at those kinds of schools unless they were missionaries. And Mm. so this is a practical issue as well as a philosophical issue. Many people are living in communities like this, particularly in parts of the Northeast or the West, where every professional in a segregated community, it needs to come from someone of your own race. So mm-hmm. part of what Du Bois is promoting is Black dentists, Black doctors, because they are cut off from access of white professionals who have already received that training. So there's different elements of this, and other people have explained this far better. But you're seeing through Claudie, everyone she knows is in a profession, but everyone she knows is the same race that she is. They're not all the same nationality, right. but they are all of the same race that she is because they are segregated And they are making the absolute most of that situation by creating their own culture. That was the philosophy of the Talented Tenth.
0: Right. It actually reminds me of like in my own kind of like world of reading and things and research, like Sadie Delaney would have been recruited around this time from Harlem Public Library to Tuskegee, which is sort of an interesting trajectory. Like, do you make this part of what you were just describing of She's a librarian who runs programs at Harlem Public Library that celebrate Black writers and Black authors, and then gets recruited to treat basically World War I veterans, just like Cloudy's dad, and to create reading programs for um, veterans in the hospital there to recover from all sorts of physical, mental um, illnesses. And it her first move is to create a library that has portraits of Black writers and Black um, figures of, of excellence, her words on the walls and have books by black authors. So just to kind of like lean into the segregation as you're describing and say like, okay, if we can only treat black patients here, we're going to celebrate black culture. And that ends up being a really revelatory thing. And I can imagine it being more so hitting harder in Tuskegee than it would have even in Harlem because there is so much more violence and overt segregation in Tuskegee.
1: So if we think about Addie Walker, right, who is born 1854, and we think about Claudie Wells, who is probably born 1912, right? So we think of that difference. That is, what, two generations? We're not talking a huge difference. And something to appreciate in the American girl universe is Addie has to free herself, right? Addie frees Mm -hmm. herself right towards the end of the Civil War in 1864. And then we have what could have been her granddaughter, right, being born in Harlem, right, in a place where every professional looks like her. That is a tremendous amount of change, right? It didn't happen fast enough. It should have happened faster. But the American government cut off the reconstruction process when Addie would have been a young adult. And so someone like Du Bois, but also someone like Booker T. Washington, What they're encouraging is institution building. They're encouraging Mm. people to be able to do things. And it's not sort of a spirit of rugged individualism, like, well, I'll build this house I was born in myself. It's survival, right? It's people being cut off from other things we open on a scene of Claudie learning a kind of dance that is both specific to Harlem and African influence that's happening at historically black institutions because there is this effort of like survival, right? Like how do we hold on to these things? How do we hold on to these traditions? But it's also that artifact of segregation, right? So this is a community that has its own kind of culture because There isn't access, right, to other kinds of institutions. You're going to see during Claudie's lifetime uh, more of an integration of higher education. But both Du Bois, who does go to Harvard, as he said, the pleasure was Harvard's, not his. You see people uh, very rarely attending white institutions because they're not permitted, right, despite the fact that they are more talented. You don't see people being admitted someone like Du Bois, right, is pushing, also Marcus Garvey, right, who you could see coming right out of this same time period, they're pushing for that kind of building because of the lack of access. So it's part survival, and it's part, you know, promoting the absolute, what they would see as the absolute best, where Claudia, I think, is very much a reflection of the early 2000s and 2022 is Claudie doesn't just internalize that she has to be the best
0: she questions it and i yes. think that is
1: more a reflection
0: of that's our a really moment. important point yeah i think that's a really important point that she and i think it also speaks to Brit Bennett being a child of generation one american girl in the same way that i think we're a part of that too which is like the sign or the measure of being a fan who grew up with american girl in the era we did is that it actually raised you to ask hard questions. And in some ways you might turn that on American Girl. And I actually respected Valerie Tripp for in a recent interview saying like the measure, like we in fact raised girls and kids to do that. Mm-hmm. Not talking about our show, but sort of saying like if people question American Girl in the past, like that's the measure that it worked, like that we raised girls to ask hard questions. And I think Britt Bennett is sort of reading herself into the book in that moment to be like, here's me in this book. Like she's not afraid to ask questions about this expectation that's placed on her.
1: But also how cool, right. That this, I I think is objectively better in some ways than some other American girl books, because we've all learned from it. Right. I I think we've all learned like people can make other products, you know, talking about American girl in the future and They will be better than what we've done because the conversation started somewhere else. And I loved pretty much every page that I was reading of this book. And it's like the accumulation of all of these lessons, of all of these takeaways, and this acute awareness that you don't want to actually take people back in time. We don't actually want to you know, be in Claudie's exact position because, one, that's impossible. The way that lynching is handled in this book, I think, is so brilliant because it so elegantly speaks to the world that people are living in now and issues with police brutality and the way that black violence against Black people is shown on television but Black perspectives are not. And I think the way that that is done in this book, I have to imagine there was round after round of conversation. But that scene between Claudia and her mother, I think, was meant to open up a discussion about life
0: today. Yes, I 100% agree. The mom basically says, if I let you come to Georgia with me, you have to mind me. Like anything I say, you have to just do it. And I think that that scene was really powerful because to me, that seemed actually the scene that most spoke to right now. The fact that Black parents have to have stark conversations with their children about like what to do if you encounter the police, like about the realities of violence against Black people in our world right now. And I have to imagine that came from a lot of conversations with the advisors. But, um, you know, I think that's a really important and tragic through line of this book is that I think sometimes when American Girl in the Past has told stories about history, there's been sort of like this emphasis on progress, like implied, like, oh, wow, like we've come such a long way from like the world of Kirsten. And yet, like when you read this book, a lot of it to me is like, wow, look how far we haven't come when it comes to racism in our country or other things like that. And I think, you know, I think they handled that in a really smart way by not avoiding it.
1: That had very much, uh, it evoked for me the story of Emmett and Mamie Till, In the way that, you know, his mother had to – or chose to become kind of a civil rights advocate in the wake of her son's murder in the South. And these kinds of conversations about cultural mores and expectations being different and the notion that Claudie lives in this very particular kind of environment and her mother is extremely apprehensive about her leaving – When you think about it, her mother and father have worked so hard to raise their son and their daughter in a place where they're surrounded by people who are thriving and they Mm -hmm. have this difficulty with the rent, right? Like there's the fear of being evicted. There's also this really, I thought, compelling tension within the family of are they better off living in a boarding house where they know someone can always take care of Claudie, right? Having a village to take care of her. Or do they want to be kind of like other families, air quotes, living a nuclear lifestyle, building generational wealth by owning their own property, you know, not paying rent to a boarding housekeeper? That also felt very of that moment, right? Like there is so much that they gain and so much that their daughter and son gain from having this village of people living with them, taking care of them. Claudia herself reflects that when she's at Nina's house, her mom is always home after school, but she's like, her mom is kind of boring. Like she watches us yeah. cake, and her mom isn't out doing yeah. recording. And Claudia reflects that she loves that her mother is so busy and so active. But this idea, right, of are you trying to become like everybody else? Are you trying to become like this white ideal that is held up of people living alone
0: in their houses? Or is that actually very lonely? Hmm, yeah. And I wonder if like the parents in the book too are going to have an even more direct conversation about that. Like, is the thing that we've been aspiring to actually something that we, now that we're in a position to have it, we don't actively want. It's also unclear, unclear if they can afford it because, yeah. I mean, you know, he's picking up extra shifts at the bakery. The mom is giving extra lessons to kids on how to read and write to kind of supplement this back rent um, that's due. Yeah, but I do think that it does hold up sort of like the vision of like white nuclear family. And is sort of like, is this the ideal that people think it is? Or is this other kind of communal living situation, which to me feels like chosen family, but also like not generational wealth, but like generational community. Like, what if that's the goal? Like, what if that's something that actually brings more joy or is more sustaining than, you know, being able to have a mom who can watch you eat finger sandwiches and ask how your day was, I guess. <laughs>
1: There's this there's this through line too of just like there's a a pretty famous book on this by Kevin Gannon and it's called Uplifting the Race and just this pressure right of like knowing that people are watching Right. Like knowing that people are watching and particularly as Harlem becomes sort of a better known place. We've read books such as Slumming by Chad Heap, which talk about like the way that white people would essentially come in and surveil Harlem or watch Mm -hmm. what was happening in Harlem as a kind of curiosity because it was so different. The scene where Claudia is going through the street on her scooter with her dog and she has these kinds of moments where she's carefree. This book does an exceptionally good job of balancing that with the fact that walking through the street is also how she notices the NAACP flag for the first time. A man was lynched yesterday. Like her right. world has all these complexities that I think a lesser writer
0: would have been like, oh, this is so awkward, right? Or it would have been like subtle as a freight train. Like my family read me a story about a man who was lynched yesterday and he'd be like, okay, like, yeah. you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah.
1: No now, what did you make of the historical section in the back? Because we don't get all of like now that we've gone to more recent American girls, we don't always get that.
0: We don't always get that. And actually before that section, I thought the reader questions that we got were really good. There's a section of questions for readers. And the first one I think asks, Miss Zula is the dance teacher, and she says dancing is like storytelling is another way of storytelling. And there's a question about that. Like, what other ways do you use to tell stories? And I thought that was really smart because I think it asks kids um, as readers to think about the fact that storytelling isn't just like a text-based enterprise. It could be so many other things. And I also think it opens up the brand to various kinds of storytelling or like to- telling stories about people whose histories might not be strictly textual, yes. um, like opening the door for more indigenous history, for example. Um, And I thought that was really sharp. I thought this was like the best peek into the past, like no joke I've ever read in the sense that I didn't like groan one time reading it like this is a weird take or like, I mean, we're measuring on a scale of like this to like Molly's book, Neglecting the Holocaust.
1: Can we also be real that these reader questions are not for kids? No, probably not.
0: They're like for your like friend book club of adults, like drinking wine, talking about this book, which we also promote and endorse.
1: There are so many layers to these questions, and I do just want to, like, dwell on this briefly. Some, some of them are as direct as, why do you think Mama doesn't want to take Claudie to Georgia? Like, the mom says, like, why she doesn't want to take her there, and then there's obviously a little bit more to it. For Chapter 6, the question is, the title thrown out refers to the eviction notice Miss Amelia receives. It also refers to how Black people, especially returning soldiers, felt at this time. Why did they feel this way? There's like contextual clues in the book, but I was like, adults need this way more than 10-year-olds. Yeah, I mean- (laughs) Like, where's Tucker Carlson? Like, hey-
0: Where's Tucker- (laughs) Hey, boo, where's where's Ron DeSantis? Like, there's a TikTok I shared of that kind of lays out this narrative that basically the Addy books have been pulled from Florida public schools as being critical race theory and inappropriate. And I think that there's this world where- Particularly white parents are like, if we don't have to read any unpleasantness, we don't have to deal with it. And the questions do a really good job. Like, I was actually thinking about those parents and what's going on in Florida and elsewhere in our country right now to think, like, you guys need to sit with these questions. Like, if you've never, like, if you don't have these books on your shelves, that history doesn't go away. That reality doesn't go away. You're just not inviting your kids um, to have any curiosity about it and frankly to, to cultivate any kind of compassion. I think like I heard a trans activist lately speak who was saying like we're actually dealing with a huge compassion gap in our country and I think that's true and I think the reading questions do a really good job of inviting curiosity and inviting, you know, critical thinking about these issues, which frankly are still with us today. There's a,
1: a notable line that Britt Bennett says about the fact that she wanted the Just Like Her doll because it came with a blank book and she wanted to be able to fill that book with her story. And this book actually ends with Claudie being excited of how she's going to fill a notebook with her stories from the South. It's like she's already like Zora Neale Hurston before that yes. happened. But The Peek Into the Past, as you say, like has amazing illustrations. It gives you so much information and it also kind of keeps at the center. It's like this is a book about Black people thriving in a very particular place and time. And these are also the challenges that they face, whereas other books kind of would riff on like, so anyway, like, you know, childbirth, like. Maybe it's changed, <laughs> you know, like this feels a lot more yes. focused. It did also make me really sad because I want 10 Claudie books and I know we're not getting it.
0: Yeah, I think that's the key point of sadness for me too is like when I finished this book, I wanted to immediately pick up volume two. So I'm already like mad that I have to wait for that, but I totally understand, Britt, you do you. But I'm also upset that, like, we're seemingly not going to get the six book arc. And I don't understand fundamentally why we moved, why the brand moved away from that, because I actually think, yeah, sure, some of the stories were repetitive in some ways. But being able to live in a character's world in a kind of more pronounced way, I think, allowed you to get more out of it than sort of like these dips in and dips out.
1: They're also not giving Claudie the full run of clothing, right? These things go with each other. The whole point used to be... Like,
0: why? I don't understand this. I don't know. I think it's a
1: huge underestimation of the fan base. I know that so many people would love to acquire more things, right? And then that would be more teaching tools, more ways to understand kind of her world. People are doing it on their own, but... This peek into the past is also a reminder that, like, American Girl didn't come out of nowhere. Things like the Brownie book set a really important precedent for, like, making content that appealed to children, and that's 100 plus years old at this point, right? Like, American Girl was specifically its own thing, but the Brownie book was, like, made to encourage children and those are really like wonderful teaching tools. And it's like, yes, get back to that, right? Like keep making things that are interesting and compelling, and not just like selling random wizard stuff that people don't
0: want. Yeah. I mean, also, like, it's sort of stunning to think in, in reading this history that there's more censorship of what kids read now than like for decades. And, you know, wh- what does that say about our world today versus, you know, what was happening in this time? And I think from the passing references to what appeared in, in the Brownie magazine, it's like they assumed, you know, they spoke to kids or assumed their intelligence and didn't dumb things down or assume like, we can't talk about hard things with you because you can't handle it. And I see that happening a lot now, particularly on race and trans um, representation. And it's just ridiculous to me. I mean, it's... Yeah. I don't know. So, I mean, I, if anything, it's like, I wish I could have a hundred cloudy books. <laughs> like I just love it so much. And it does remind me of like, God, it's like this book so speaks to the times. Like, cause now there's obviously a lot of conversations about like white people gentrifying Harlem and like what it means for like Harlem to, you know, be encroached upon by even more like land developers and all this other stuff. And it's like, that's in this book. It's like, there's so many smart things in this book. I don't know. I'm a fan.
1: Me too. And I think it puts forward, you know, A moment, right? Like the the closing paragraph of the Peek into the Past, which they call Claudie's World, describes the fact that, you know, quote, Harlem was a place of hope. Children saw opportunities and possibilities no other generations had seen before. And the fact that today Harlem is not segregated in the same way as it once was, but is it more equitable? Right. I think that's like a really interesting question. And I know that Britt Bennett is doing some events this month to promote the fact that the next book is coming out and she has a really cool and really interesting relationship with American Girl. I think we'll
0: definitely cover the second book when it comes out, just hasn't happened yet. Um, Yeah, well, I'll be looking for some of those events. Hopefully there's something virtual I can attend, but this has been a great entree into it. And I, I only wish we were gonna get six books.
1: Me too, me too.
0: So Allison, do you want to say where we're going next?
1: I would love to. So we are getting on a jet plane and we are going to be meeting Nanea, and we will be reading her two books and we will be posting. There is a lot of confusion about the books that have come out more recently, because of like Be Forever rebrands, and we will post the two books that we are reading of Nanea's. Those are what we're going to start with. We're really welcome to your feedback of how you want us to handle these characters, like Nanea and other kind of like contemporary ones. Julie is the last girl that has six books, so we're gonna okay. start with Nanea. We're gonna see how that goes, and then, you know, get into the polio of it all with Mary Ellen. We shall see. But that's where we're headed next. You can always give us uh, feedback by leaving us a voice message. You could send a snail mail to our PO box. We're at Dolls Lives Pod on Twitter. We're also Dolls of Our Lives Podcast on Instagram.
0: Mary, where should people find you on Instagram? You can find me on Instagram at Mimi Mahoney. And we do love hearing from you. And if you write to the show or to us, we always take questions that we could save for a mailbag. So you can always let us know if you have a mailbag question as well. Allison, how about you?
1: I'm at Allison Horrocks on Twitter and Instagram,
0: and we love to hear from you. Wonderful. Well, this has been such a great conversation. I'm sad to leave this book and this character behind just for now, but I'm really excited about where we're going next, and I'm excited to take all of you with us. So we'll see you on our next episode.